Space Cave. I'm David Huntsberger, a big warg to you. It's been a bit. If you're unfamiliar with warg, it's a term coined by known wells. It's a combination of warm and hug. Warm hug. Warg. Which is meant to be similar to that, uh, I think it was a, a Dutch term that went around a few years ago that was the feeling of when you come inside after a cold wet day and take off your clothes and sit by a fire and maybe have like a warm cup of tea. I think that's Hugo or something like that in Dutch. Um, so warg, welcome in. Come on in, escape the frenetic pace that's happening outside. Put your mind at ease, relax, and enjoy some conversation inside the space cave. Before we start, I just want to say thanks to people who support this show on Patreon. It uh, allows this show to exist ad-free. It's made possible by contributions from listeners just like you, and I appreciate the support. This show hasn't been happening as frequently because I've been working on Intercepts. If you haven't listened to that yet, it's a sketch show that I do. There's 10 episodes out um, anywhere you get podcasts, or you can go to davidhunsberger.com or um, theendlessabyss.com. And if you listen to the show, then then that website makes more sense. Sci-fi... Um, existential things, philosophical ideas, reincarnation, that kind of stuff. If you like any of that and you like scripted, like, sketch comedy, Intercepts. Check it out. Uh, I also have a podcast with my friend Wendy Molyneux, who uh, is very is one of the funniest people on the planet. It's called These Are Those Tapes. We just improvise for 20 to 30 minutes. It's just nonsense, but it's a nice little escape. They're usually pretty silly and and uh, enjoyable if you like that sort of thing. So these are those tapes.com. Also, you can find that at davidhunsberger.com. Okay, let's get into it. Part one, this is a little bit more of the backstory, learning about this individual who's fascinating, an incredible life, the trajectory to get to uh, becoming the CEO and founder and chief architect of Hyperreal, which is a site that uh, <clears throat> if you visit hyperreal.io, uh, it empowers creators to own, copyright, and monetize their digital identity. So this is the future. This is looking ahead. This is things like deep fakes and uh, the world existing in a digital format going forward. Your version, your avatar kind of in there. We talk about the the vision it took to get to that place, of understanding that, of how all of these things coming together. Um, and I might ramble about that in a Patreon episode of what the world feels like right now as we're kind of transitioning toward that and uh, what your views and thoughts on that are. But first, I want to, um, we'll go to the beginning and learn how Remington Scott got his start in visual effects. He's a pioneer, I would say probably a legend in the industry. Very fortunate to talk with him. Uh, I appreciated the time. Here's part one with Remington Scott. <laughs> 
I like doing the show in person just because yeah. little, you know, gestures and things as humans that we do, which ties into what your fascination, <laughs> I assume, starts with, which is what are the nuance of humans? How do you make it more realistic? How do you... I know that in the past with like marionettes and um, even servos on animatronic things, if they just move perfectly on a plane, it's not lifelike. We kind of bobble a little bit. So puppeteers will always be moving it. So I guess that starts us at the beginning of you being a kid playing 8-bit video games and then looking at that and wondering how it moved. And I didn't, I, I was reading the bio, I didn't fully understand how you, you videotaped it and then played it back frame by frame. I was yeah. confused by that. Should we? Should I just start talking about that? Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thanks, David. Um, let's let's talk about the little version of me, um, my inner my my child like uh, fascination with movement. Um, like I think I was just normal, like so many other kids that watched Disney when we grew up. There was, um, you know, just the greatest animation coming out of Hollywood from uh, the Disney company and the way that they animated characters and everything was just so exciting to me. And you know, I watched cartoons all the time. So I don't know what it was, but I just wanted to emulate that. And, um, you know, as a child, I was just trying to animate things. You, you do things like where you animate, like maybe on a book, every page of the book and you flip the pages, like the flip cards. Yeah. I, I graduated to like five by seven cards, flipping them all stick figure stuff, really crude and rudimentary. Um, but just understanding that the principles of being able to draw a picture and then another picture and another picture, and when you play it back sequentially, it gives you um, the illusion of life. <laughs> for me, <laughs> again, rude and rudimentary child work uh, for Disney, absolutely like groundbreaking emotional moments. Um, so, you know, you put those pieces together just as a lifelong fascination, child life fascination, and then getting into video games and watching video games. And when I was growing up, there were arcade games and it was like literally Pong <laughs> and Pac-Man. So there wasn't a lot of animation. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, in high school, I was very fortunate to to start working with uh, a guy who was just incredible at programming. His name was Mike Rydell. And um, we um, worked together on building the first digitized home video game. And, uh, you know, at the time we had no, I had no idea that this was going to end up becoming a thing that within 10 years, there'd be this term called multimedia, <laughs> where you're watching movies on a, on a CD. <laughs> but when we were doing it, it was like, how do we make move? How do we make animations for games and make them more realistic? And like, so the idea was instead of drawing it by hand, it was um, getting a, a videotape and playing the video and going and finding the key frames of the action on the video. And are and you doing this in? When you digitize it, though, what software existed then to kind of bring no, those keyframes in? It was all built. So that's the, that's a great question because it was not existent. Like <laughs> this is three years before QuickTime and it was three years before Photoshop. So if I would have known, I think we would have just made QuickTime and Photoshop and called it, you know, <laughs> called it a life. <laughs> I could have retired. But like that was not the point. The point was to make these like games. 
And we didn't think at the time that the software, you know, itself would be like this amazing. We just thought that the process, that the that the final content was the thing. Are you um, giving you're giving these individual images, these keyframes, kind of a name, and then are you writing like MS DOS type code language to say if I hit yeah. this right button on this, these sequences of um, images move this way. How did that all tie together? It was it was a little bit more interesting. And actually, there was uh, you're very very accurate. The first game we made, uh, I'll back it up. Is um, remember these are like, you know, I was out of high school. Mike was just I think he was um, one or two years into college, and he decided he just wants to make games. Then um, we were young, you know, young bucks. Um, and got an agent, and he got uh, the rights to the World Wrestling Federation. Whoa. So we licensed that. It was the first wrestling video game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 somehow we we convinced, you know, it was convinced that 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 this could be made. There was a publisher lined up uh, who was publishing this. And effectively, the game was like you're watching a wrestling movie. And um, you had on one side a list of moves that you would be able to choose for your character that were specific for that character. If it was like Hulk Hogan, it was like things that he would do. I think a suplex was one of them, if I remember correctly. And then there's the other character you're playing and there's a list of moves that they would have. And you could do a two player where you you chose the move and the other person chose a move. And then the AI would determine your strength and your opponent's strength. And then the, the complexity of your move in relation to your strength and the complexity. And therefore, then it would determine who would then get to get the move. <laughs> and then you'd watch it. And there was a success rate or a failure rate, depending upon whether you were able to practically achieve that move or not. So there's a number of different options within this tree. And we had to digitize all those options and have that available. So that way you can choose your action and then you could watch whether your action was successful or the other p- opponent's action was successful, or you're playing against like an AI opponent that would be choosing these um, actions against you. And you're watching the movie. It's like watching a wrestling game. Yeah, I remember playing as a kid a wrestling game. I'm not sure if this is the one that you guys made where I, I, I felt like I went to school and told my friends, like, I basically was Hulk Hogan. It, it's so lifelike, so realistic. You know, your imagination is so good. And then, you know, years later when I was an adult, an adult, a friend of mine and I started to play. And I remember you'd hit a button and then it was, we'd gotten so used to video games being so responsive that you'd hit a button and they would just, your guy would walk over and start doing stuff. And I'm like, wait, 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 where's he? Oh, and then you are just kind of watching. Oh, he's, he's doing a suplex. Oh, he's lifting the guy over his head. So as an adult, it wasn't, it wasn't as captivating because it had evolved so much, but I still remember in the, in the very beginning how unbelievable that felt that like, Hulk Hogan just lifted the guy. I could feel the beads of sweat dripping off of him. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think that was that that is like a quantum leap from Pac-Man, if you will. It was like okay, now we have visual images that represent a person. They're actually digitized off of a person. It wasn't even any person. It was superstars of wrestling. So, you know, somehow early on in my career, I found myself in the process of digitizing celebrities and their actions and putting it into interactive entertainment. Um, and, and that's, you know, funny enough, when I look back at the trajectory is a sort of a straight line to where, where we are today. Uh, but the interesting thing about all of this is the fact that 
it was a process that allowed us to create graphics that were more realistic because they're effectively photographs that were being digitized, images off of a video. Yeah. We clean them up because um, a lot of noise, but you know, is those photo images that were played back sequentially. So you're like watching a movie. Whereas, and I could, you know, in one day I could rip out a dozen actions, you know, a, a dozen of these um, sequences. Whereas the animators at the time were drawing frame by frame the actions of the characters. And, and at this time, I think we were beyond Pac-Man. There was, you know, you could see your characters animating across screens relatively crudely um, due to the technology limitations, not because of the animator um, skill sets. Um, re really beautiful animations, you know, that were happening at the time. But nevertheless, um, it, did, it took time to actually create these animations and you have a tree of all these animations. So we were, we were able to crank out a game every couple of weeks That's and they were higher resolution or, or better looking, you know, more realistic looking, whereas someone else in another game company took them six months and well, it just basically created this quantum change in how games were being built. Didn't really realize at the time what we were doing that was a fundamental change to the pipeline and production infrastructure, but only after, you know, um, a claim uh, was formed where um, it ended up being the, the largest publisher uh, of digitized games. And, and um, I was a director at that, at the, at the publishing house at the corporate headquarters, overseeing the content in front of green screens um, this time, actually shooting people, and, and digitizing them as they were fighting rather than just taking videos off of a, a beta SP tape. The little um, kind of the ping pong balls on the, the suit and the that kind of motion capture thing? It was all before that. This is, this is just before that. It was like actors and stuntmen on a green screen and they were dressed in these costumes and we filmed them. And you know, think like um, Mortal Kombat yeah. where you see these little guys fighting each other and they have all these cool moves, but they were digitized. So they were, they looked real because they were, again, photo images. Mm -hmm. And um, and that allowed, you know, a claim as a, as a publisher to be able to create, um, I don't know, hundreds, a hundred, a hundred titles a year. Yeah. You know, as a publisher, like that's how you want to scale, you know, obviously there's problems with making a hundred games a year and the quality <laughs> assurance of those game mechanics, but there was no problem with the quality of the images we were making and the animations. It was just, we were just cranking that out, but that was fundamentally. So, you know, if you, if you got it, it's digitizing people a video just like this, but what you're talking about is 3d digitization with motion capture. And that came from that, came from this. So the mentality at a company that was building, um, you know, massive amounts of games that were extremely realistic looking, uh, you know, in short production cycles was, you know, how they built the business. And, and it's, a, it was a very, um, a very successful business, uh, wow. for a period of time there. And then the 3d game systems came in. Uh, if you recall, it was like Nintendo 64. Yeah. And, um, and and we had the specs for early on while they're still developing these systems. So we knew what was coming down. Uh, and 
effectively what was happening was we tried to get into 3D and animate characters in 3D so that way we can then create these um, these games at the kind of scale that Acclaim wanted to create. But the problem was there were no animation tools and the tools, the ones that were existing were extremely rudimentary mm-hmm. in 3D. And the technology was um, uh, not as powerful as you'd want it to be. And a lot of it is, is code-based and p- the creatives who, who, who could animate didn't understand principles of working on a computer at that time and how to animate on that. There's very few people that really understood that. And Acclaim tried to scale up and bring animators in who could animate in two dimensions and learn how to become 3D animators. But at the time it was extremely difficult uh, and 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 these animators just didn't want to have anything to do with it. They were like, I don't see it. I don't get it. There's no future in this. <laughs> and they left. And they were like, you know, good luck with that computer shit. We're going back to pencil and paper, the way it's been done for the last 85 years. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a major industry going on <laughs> this way. We don't know what you guys are thinking you're going to do on that. Good luck. And Acclaim couldn't even get like one animation of a guy walking across the screen. It was like extremely difficult uh, as a company to imagine making even one game using this. So they, um, you know, I was part of the um, advanced technologies group and, um, you know, we had this DNA of digitizing people in 2D and, and the whole thought process was, okay, let's digitize them in 3D. Like, what can we do? How do we do that? It was like a thought. And, um, you know, looking at like military industrial complex and then into the medical industry. And lo and behold, there's an, there was a technology that was being used. It called motion capture. Oh, right. <laughs> it, was yeah. gate, it was gate analysis. And it, literally it was, so, uh, you go into a lab at a hospital and they put the, 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 the markers, those round spherical markers on your, um, on your femur and on your hips. And what they would, and you'd walk on a treadmill and there'd be cameras around you and it would analyze the rotation of the way your, the joint of your femur rotates inside your hip um, at incredible accuracy. You could see below the skin and the muscle and you could see how these, these bones are moving. And as somebody's walking, a, a, um, a technician can determine what needs to be um, replaced for hip replacement surgery. So before wow. they even open somebody up, they can determine this from the technology of capturing biomechanically of how their bones move together. Was this kind of and, the first time that the technology you were hoping to use was was a little ahead of you, that you and your partner didn't have to you know, hole up and work on it together, that you went, oh, this is something finally exists in the direction we're looking? Yeah. I mean, at, at this time, I, I, I was at a claim, you know, I was a director at this company and it was a massive company with many, many people and um, hundreds of, we, we had uh, uh, dozens of game developers internationally, all wanting content mm-hmm. and they were all ready to work and they were working on these two dimensional games, but fundamentally, you know, at the corporate headquarters where we were building the content, we just couldn't uh, create enough content without a technology like motion capture. So we didn't, you know, I think we we knew that this was going on in some way, but didn't really know the full extent until Acclaim, you know, got into it, explored it, and then you took that technology and created the first 
motion capture studio in the world dedicated to entertainment. And, uh, and, and it wasn't, you know, just digitizing people is not enough. You have to, in that point, you know, Acclaim had to build the whole infrastructure and technology stack for how to take the motion and blend it and then retarget it to different size people. Yeah, it's gonna... things like like props, have multiple people, not just femurs and hips, but full body. <laughs> right. That's what I was gonna people. say. Like if how you do know? you pitch that? Did it involve you know, you show them, hey, look, look, they can get this hip replacement thing. And the people maybe with that are writing the checks and investing in that wing to build that studio are like, right, we want to do video games, not someone walking on a treadmill. You could visualize or explain to them, no, 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 here's how we will use it. Here's how we'll make it encapsulate the whole world, not just the treadmill, almost 2D element of just walking. Yeah, there was there was enough there that 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 really um, um, you know made made a very compelling case, and so that you know once that studio was built and and it was you know effectively like this you know you were walking into the future i mean there really wasn't anything like that in animation mm-hmm. and no one even knew about it. it it was in long island new york yeah it wasn't at silicon valley it wasn't in hollywood it wasn't in japan it was like you know no one even knew that this was going on all you knew was you bought the games on on the store shelves you know or not from acclaim but um, it, it was it was fundamentally the beginning and and the whole purpose of of that studio um, to 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 create realistic humans it was it was uh, the way they move it was because the technology at the time in these games was was crude the the you, polygons you didn't have a lot of rendering capability obviously like you did today um, this is almost thirty years ago. Um, almost exactly 30 years ago and you um you know the characters were like stick figures if you will they're very polygonal um their head was like you know a box yeah you know things like that it didn't look like a human that much it just had this form and even the textures were so low resolution you couldn't get away with textures so you had to have something that sold that this was a character that had life and that's where motion capture came into it. So you could have somebody moving, and just by having like just the um, the skeletal information, like you know, you could just apply it to matchsticks and watch something so rudimentary moving across the screen. But you could tell whether that's a happy person the way they move, yeah, or they're sad, or they're in a rush, or they're hurt, just from the movement. And all of that gave you the illusion of life, of real human life. And that was like the first part of kind of digitizing um, humans and and like putting the soul into an interactive uh, gaming system. You really felt that these were living characters and it wasn't like animated where an animation is oftentimes um, an exaggeration of motion that's why we love anima- animation. We love these animated characters that are, you know, um, this is simulations of reality. It's a simulation of the way you move. And that fundamentally changed, uh, you know, th- how we started to look at digital humans, um, you know, on a computer. And to be still interested in it, I think is so, because I, the story reminds me so much of, you mentioned Silicon Valley. We know the 
Wozniak and Steve Jobs thing. We know the Bill Gates, people dropping out of college, holing up somewhere and working on something. But I think once they established the thing, hey, we did it. We did, um, we digitized it and we made really realistic looking images. We're done. And like you joked about, like, I can retire. It's not like they retired because they still did stuff, but they didn't have the same, I'm still in it. And it feels like you're still looking for the next thing, still pushing it. Like Hyper Real feels like the next jump into exploring it. You're right, David. I've got a roadmap. <laughs> and I, I, you know, it's so funny that you say this because people that know me, they're like, you're not living in today. You're living in tomorrow. And I'm not grounded in that regards, uh, I think, in that I'm thinking uh, of, of, of what it looks like, again, of, of what it, this should all look like in, in the future. And um, it's been like this the whole journey, because once you unlock it and you start to see it, mm-hmm. um, you know, early on, I don't know if I was really aware of all the capabilities and um, I was just happy to be, you know, able to be a part of something that was so exciting and, um, you know, being in an industry that I, I love to contribute to and, and working with so many talented people and so many benefits of, of being in the technology industry and the growth of video games early on. And then transitioning into feature films, um, you know, these are great industries with with really um, just amazing people, incredibly talented. But specifically in those industries, I think that there's this understanding that what you're working on today will get better tomorrow. And then um, after that, it's going to be even better just because the way technology constantly evolves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I know we're, we're in an incredible place today and what we're doing is, is building all the infrastructure and the capability um, for the future. And it's important to have that because that's how we're going to train AI moving into the future based on this data. And we have the capability now of capturing and recording humans at the highest level that we've ever had. And I just don't know how much more fidelity you really are going to get. I mean, it, it is our, you know, digital humans we're looking at, we're zooming into the skin on a level of fidelity that you're looking at sub pore level, the little wrinkles between <laughs> yeah. the pores. You can't see it with your regular eyes. You can't see it with any TV cameras. I mean, it's so incredibly high resolution. And so now, you know, we're trying to solve problems of scale and we're trying to solve problems of emotion and engaging with those emotions and a brain that is like our brain. So it just keeps adding to the tech stack uh, of of opportunities to go out and use innovation to um, to continue to find solutions as as all of this evolves and grows we're in we're in evolutionary phases i think the the revolution has we've gone through it you know and i i'm i definitely was a part of that a lot of people were in many different ways in the early days completely changing how things were done now it's about how we get that across and make it you know give it more um of, of a soul, bring it to life. So that way we, we have more of an engagement. And so we're, we're evolving with technology moving forward. I, um, 
I love animation. I've done a lot of stop motion and uh, I like I like 2D. One time I was trying to explain a joke to a friend and he didn't get it. So I had to draw kind of a, a wraparound, which started just as a few moves. And then I thought, oh, I'll just animate the whole joke. And as I was doing it, he, I was like, this is excruciating. And he was like, imagine how God feels animating you every day. And I thought that was a funny quip. Yeah, I thought that was like, yeah, it's interesting. A friend of mine later had a DVD player and I was watching The Simpsons on it and you could pause it and go frame by frame and watch it happen. So you get interested in like the movement, you see that and you see the, and then, so in your story, like the 2D animators at Acclaim being like, I don't see the future. Or maybe some of them being like, thinking of like the the old Disney animators, if you watch like a woman spin in a dress and the way the breeze catches it and them saying, that's the art of it. That's the thing that just animation can create and give you that feeling. Maybe they don't see the beauty or the future in what AI or what hyper real, like uncanny valley realism, the benefit of it. Maybe they'd say, oh, there's no soul to it. And then you're talking about bring a soul into it. And I'm fascinated by that, that people could step out and be like, eh, it's too uncomfortable to me. You see artists now that are like asking an AI to generate a painting. Come on, I need chisel marks. I need brush strokes. I need the things that humans give to it. But looking ahead and, and saying, that's just a temporary roadblock. Way beyond it is this. It is this thing with a soul, or it is this thing that is so realistic that I'm talking with you here and then you, you glitch out and I go, ah, Remington Scott, you got me. It was a, it was so real. I was convinced I was looking at you, and you'd say, "No, that's the, that's it." The, the, if you enter the digital space, we've created something that is so realistic that if you want to get away from it, you have to go walk out in nature. You have to go be in physical Earth because in here, in entertainment, it's it's too real. You can't differentiate between the two. Is that kind of where it's trending? Well, um, you know, hyper real is a term that was created in the 1980s by a French philosopher. His name is Jean Baudrillard. And he termed hyperreal. He came up with this term. And it means um, effectively a simulation, a computer simulation of reality that is better than reality. <laughs> okay, so you can, and it, it, what he was saying was that it, it's a, it, it will be a state of, of reality in which people will want to spend more time in the simulation than in reality. And I think we're already there, right? Like, you know, we're spending a lot of time on our devices. Mm -hmm. It is a virtual device. These are virtual ecosystems, you know? So he predicted this at a time when computers were were nascent, but he knew that, you know, there's an evolution of how things are gonna come together. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the spirit of, of hyperreal. Um, you know, it, it, it is a sense of like of being present and being able to engage uh, in synthetic worlds that are going to, you know, and, and, and people um, of all kinds of identities, um, you, me, um, anyone across the spectrum of, of entertainment uh, and beyond, uh, performers, you know, and, and, and how this all comes together into a place that is going to be an exciting new simulation of all of this. And that's what we've been building in many, in many steps. Um, so 
it's exciting to see, and we're going to see that there's levels that um, currently uh, may need, you know, a, a, you know, more definition and fidelity in the level of realism. Um, there may be steps that we've already achieved in the sense of how you engage, and certain things may play with other things where they're weighted differently. So, for example. Um, you may have more engagement, less photorealism, but it will feel like a world you'd rather be in than reality. It doesn't need to necessarily be as, as photographically real. And then it might be on the other side of the equation where it's absolutely photographically real, and that's what you want to be in. And you really don't you know, need to have this engagement level. you know. But I think that there is across the line, um, all of this is coming together and it's creating new opportunities for um, talent and discovery and innovation in a hyper real uh, infrastructure. David, yeah. sorry, I have to go. I have another call. Okay. If you want to continue this, we can. Okay. Uh, but can we put a pause at this time? Sure. Okay. Well, ended kind of abruptly. I didn't prepare you for that at the beginning. I probably should have. But we'll ease into it and then go right into part two next time. So come back. And that's where we get into talking about the future, some of the philosophical um, thoughts and maybe um, views you could have on on where things are going digitally and what that means for humanity and culture and society, etc. Uh, I, th I think it's really fascinating. And I hope you like it as well. Um, again, thanks to those of you who support the show on Patreon. It is made possible by listener contributions uh, from people just like you. So thank you. I know the show doesn't come out um, as frequently as it used to, but there are uh, like 200 plus episodes you can dig through. Um, I think there's like 100 available through iTunes. It stops adding them after a point. So a lot of those early ones are being archived and put together, parts one and two together. And slowly I'm chipping them into the Patreon. So if you want to go back and listen to episodes one and two, the Patreon's the place to do that. Uh, you can also visit thespacecave.com. If you have suggestions of guests or beer or topics or anything, uh, pings at thespacecave.com. Follow it on Twitter. There's links to all those things. I, I've slowly been adding guest photos and some of the photos I took of the beer bottles and just some of the atmosphere in the the recording space, you can find that at Instagram, Space Cave. I don't think there's an underscore for the Twitter. I don't know if there is for the Instagram. If you just search it or search my name, you'll you'll find it. Anyway, lots of ways to stay up on things. It gets overwhelming to one keep up with all that stuff, but also the content that you're consuming, the material, the entertainment, the things that go into your brain. I hope you're doing a good job of selecting it wisely, of knowing that the it's it's fuel for your mental health, what you put into your your brain and body. So I hope you're staying healthy and consuming things that make you feel good, make you think a little bit, make you um, feel better about the world or at least a little less worried about it because it's daunting. There's so much stuff. And I appreciate that this became one of the things that you listen to. So come back for part two and a lot more in the Patreon. And let's get out of here. This is a song by someone who I think is so talented, uh, really interesting videos, beautiful voice, pretty songs, and uh, I'll, I'll share a link to that at the at thespacecave.com so you can see some of the videos. Um, 
I've played one song before. Anyway, this is a new song off her latest album. This song is called Easy Target. It's by Jamie Drake. I hope you like it. Thank you. 